0: In her book uh, *Unbroken*, Laura Hildebrand, um, who also wrote the uh, the the story about Seabiscuit, famous racehorse, but she recounts the amazing true story of the World War II uh, veteran and prisoner of war Louis Zamperini. May twenty seventh, nineteen forty three, Zamperini's brother left Oahu in search of survivors from a downed plane, and about eight hundred miles. From the base, one of the engines cut out and the bomber plunged into the ocean. And Zamperini and another soldier would stay afloat on a tiny life raft for 47 days, which is a world record for survival at sea. Confronting sharks and starvation and dementia, their real battle would begin. Because Zamperini would spend the next two years as a Japanese POW in the notorious Sugamo prison. In particular, there was a guard who they nicknamed the Bird, who ensured that Louis in particular endured constant physical torture and verbal humiliation so that the spirit of the American soldiers would be be shattered. 1944, by then the U.S. had simply declared Louis had been dead, declared dead. He returned to America to a rush of publicity having been liberated. Unfortunately, though, his life began to descend into this prison that he had made for himself now of alcoholism and bitterness. And he endured constant nightmares about his past and and an obsessive drive to go back and murder the bird. But these walls of addiction and hatred really started to crumble when in 1949... Louis attended a Billy Graham crusade and heard the gospel and trusted Christ. And Laura Hildebrand writes about this after receiving Christ. When Louis thought of his history, what resonated with him now was not all that he had suffered, but the divine love that he believed had intervened to save him. He was not the worthless, broken, forsaken man that the bird had striven to make him. In a single silent moment, his rage, his fear, his humiliation and helplessness had fallen away. That morning, he believed he was a new creation. A year after trusting Christ, Zamparini returned to that prison uh, in Japan where he met with some of his former captors, except the bird. Louis was told that the bird had committed suicide. And Laura Hildebrand writes again, Louis felt something he had never felt for his captor before. With a shiver of amazement, he realized it was compassion. At that moment, something shifted sweetly inside him. It was forgiveness, beautiful and effortless and complete. For Louis Zamperini, the war was over. Now, how could Zamperini forgive the one called the bird and find peace? Because the war for his soul had already been won by God in Christ, and he had been fully and freely forgiven himself. Which is the question I like to wrestle with this evening for a few minutes here. Uh, What does it mean to be fully and freely forgiven? And how did God in Christ provide for that? And these verses we read gives part of the answer of that question for us by clearly showing that the answer is the victory Christ won at the cross. On that day in history, as we look back and think of Good Friday today, on that day in history, in the tiny captured province of Palestine, outside of a little city, and inconspicuous really to the world, obviously important in the Bible, but not important to the world, on a rocky hill under the Roman Empire, three more Jews in the Roman Empire were killed that day. It was a regular day in Roman Empire experience. But it was a day and a moment that God powerfully explains the significance of that day that had been chosen before the foundation of the world for the rough calloused foot of the poor Jewish construction uh, uh, worker, Rabbi Teacher. The one who had been prophesied of old of the line of David, the king born of the Jewish virgin Miriam to grind the head of the deceiver into the rocky soil of that hill. There is no death ever like the death of this man. And here's what Paul has said here at that moment in history means in the unseen realm for humanity. If you have by faith and repentance have turned to Christ, you have been fully and freely forgiven. And here is how that was provided for on that day in history. First of all, I want you to see very simply is number one, he removed the charge. He removed the charge. Notice what Paul says. You've been forgiven all your trespasses, the end of verse 13. And he says in verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. What was the handwriting of ordinances against us there's different theories and uh different uh um uh possibilities of what paul could be referring to here um in the roman uh, prisons as you would walk past the cell above that cell would be uh the crime uh, for which that one in the cell would be accused of written in parchment above Above the top or, or in chalk or however they would write it there. Uh, why that person was in prison awaiting their trial. Here's the crimes against the state or here's the crimes against their fellow Roman citizens. Uh, perhaps Paul was referring to what John writes in John chapter 19 <clears throat> verses 19 and 20 when Pilate nails across the top of the cross uh, the charge against Jesus. <clears throat> and he says this in John, and John records this in John 19, 19 and 20. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The title, this title then read many of the Jews for the place where Jesus was crucified was near to the city and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. This was Pilate's way of showing this is the crime that he's accused of. Caesar is the true king, and this one says that he is the king of the Jews, and that is incompatible with the Roman Empire. And to the Jews' mind, of course, it was incompatible to their mind, because it was blasphemy to say that he was the king of the Jews, because only God, uh, the, the, the Son of God, could be that one. And there is no way this Jewish peasant from Nazareth could be the Son of God. That was what was against him. That was the reason he was being executed that day on the cross. He removed the charge against us, this handwriting of ordinances that was against us. Well, you say, well, what does it have to do with Christ? Well, here's the problem. Each of us has handwriting of ordinances against us. I'd like you to turn to Ephesians chapter two and verse 15. And see how Paul puts this in another place. He says in Ephesians 2.15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of two one new man, so making peace. In other words, there was the law of God, the law of the commandments that was against us, even as Gentiles. You see, we know God's law, his moral law, deep in our hearts. Our consciences testify to that. And he removed that, uh, charge against us because we have fallen short of his glory. And we could just think of it very simply. Let's just, let's just work through the Ten Commandments a little bit, right? Basic moral code here. He starts off with, you shall have no other gods before me. How have we done with that? Well, all of us have exalted things in God's place, haven't we? We, we, we have, we have exalted and worshiped things, made things priority, uh, to us, made things more important to us than glorifying God. There's strike one, right? Should have no other gods before me. Then he says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, a a graven image, any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or the earth beneath or the water under the earth. In other words, the problem is one of the things we do when we worship other gods is we take the things of creation, Romans says, and we exchange that truth for a lie and we worship created things. We do that all the time, don't we? We worship possessions. We worship positions. Uh, of, of, of of authority or rank. Uh, we worship fame. Uh, we worship comforts. We take the things that God has given to us, good gifts, and we turn them into ultimate things and we begin to worship them and the handwriting of God uh, is against that. We have stored up wrath because of that. Here he has shown his kindness and we breathe the king's air and we drink the king's water and we eat the king's food and we use it for our own self-exaltation and our own selfishness instead of for God's glory. He says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And some of us just might shrink that to simply using God's name in a, as a curse, but it's more than that. It means ascribing the value that God has for all that he is in his character and being, and holding that up before us in reverence and awe, and so many times I cast the things of God aside as common and even profane. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy and, and 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 the rest that we're supposed to have in God. You know where my heart likes to try to find its rest? It tries to find its rest in these created things. It tries to find its satisfaction and its peace and its, and its happiness in things that are meant to be gifts, but not meant to, again to be ultimate things. And it, and it searches for those things and it's craving, uh, 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 this wholeness and, 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 and it, and it is, as the, the prophet says, drinking out of broken cisterns instead of the living water. Honor your father and your mother. All of us have broken that one. Pretty quickly, as toddlers, even haven't we? We have not given the 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 authority that God has delegated to our parents. We have not given the honor to that. No matter what, how your father and mother was, how they raised you, etc. There, uh, many we we have responded wrongly to who they are, the ones who have parented us. Parented us. I shall not murder. The people that we wish weren't in our lives. The people that we wish were gone. The people that we wish would make our, would be gone in our lives would be so much better without these people, right? The hatred in our hearts, the, the, the lack of, uh, of active, real generosity to one another. It's hatred. And God says hatred is rooted all the way back in Cain and it's murder. I shall not commit adultery. We have in our society, in our own lives, entertained wrong thoughts about the opposite sex or perhaps even the same sex. And God looks at the purity of marriage where sexual relationships are to be enjoyed and to be honored, and he says it is undefiled, and we have perverted that and twisted that looking at image bearers of God as items of lust. I shall not steal. There's many things we can take. Many things we can lie about. Many things we can fudge on our taxes, right? Many reputations we can mar and steal from other people. You didn't come here, I know, this evening probably to be reminded about how nasty we are, but The Bible says we're pretty messed up. We're pretty broken. And this blackness of sin sets the jewel of Christ's cross most beautifully to shine. Bear false witness against your neighbor. Gossip, slander, Many times in the character qualifications of God's leaders in the church, slander is one thing that is listed up at the very the top few things, isn't it? For men and women, God hates a lying tongue. He hates hands that are swift to shed innocent blood, and he hates divisions that have been caused through jealousies and envies, deceitfulness. They bear false witness. We want ourself exalted above another person. We 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 throw mud on people so that we look cleaner. Sin. And then the one that really covers so many things: Thou shalt not covet. Shall not covet the neighbor's house, his wife, his male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, anything that's your neighbor's. And that's what American society is built on, isn't it? That's why you have commercials every fifteen minutes or ten minutes, right? Thou shalt not covet. And so, this handwriting of ordinances of how we have fallen short of fully loving God, fully loving, fully loving our neighbor, stands against us. It is contrary to the pathway to God, to life with God. It, it, it is, it is, it is in the way. This, this is, this is, this is, this is a, a tattooed across our foreheads. And you can kind of look at it like this. I found saw this picture. The other day, and I thought it was, it was, uh, it was so descriptive, just gave a good picture of, of what it, of what it is, uh, uh, that we stand guilty, and Christ the innocent one stands as the one condemned in our place. Max Lucato writes about a man named Noble Doss who one day dropped the ball. One ball, one pass, one mistake. In 1941, he let it fall. And it's haunted him ever since. He said, I cost us a national championship. It was the University of Texas football team, 1941. It was ranked number one in the nation. They're hoping for an undefeated season and a berth in the Rose Bowl, and they played their conference rival, Baylor University. They had a 7-0 lead in the third quarter, and the Longhorn quarterback, Noble Doss, or Longhorn quarterback, launched a deep pass to Doss, Noble Doss, who was wide open. He said the only thing that had between B and the end zone was 20 yards of grass. The throw was on target. It was perfect. Longhorn fans rose to their feet. It was, it was a guaranteed touchdown. Doss had very sure hands. He was known for catching balls, not for dropping balls. He spotted the ball. He reached out and somehow it slipped through his hands. Baylor rallied. They tied the score with seconds to play. Texas lost their top ranking. And they lost their chance at the Rose Bowl. It was in 1941. And Doss says, I think about that play every day. Not that he lacks other memories. He's been happily married for more than six decades. He's a father, he's a grandfather, great grandfather. He served in the Navy during World War II. He appeared on the cover of Life magazine with his Texas teammates. He intercepted 17 passes during his collegiate career, a university record. He won two NFL titles. The Philadelphia Eagles, the Texas High School Hall of Fame, and the Longhorn Hall of Honor include his name. And most fans remember the plays that he made and the passes he caught, and he remembers the one that he missed. He's haunted by guilt. And once he met one of the new uh, Texas Longhorn uh, head coaches, and Doss told him about the bobbled ball. It had been 50 years since that game, but he was still weeping as he spoke. Friends, that was something he couldn't necessarily, maybe he could, but that wasn't something that the world holds against him. That wasn't something you would necessarily control. But we are rightly guilty before God. Scripture says when God looks at us and he shows his righteousness and his perfection, He's, uh, as we stand before God, it, 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 is, it is very clear that every mouth must be stopped. There's no excuses. There are no excuses. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. See, we were created perfectly in the image of God. But we've distorted that. We're out of order, fractured, twisted, marred, ruined. And the Bible says we are guilty. And because of that, Christ died in our place. Because of that bad news, here's the good news. That three things have occurred, these these verses tell us, <clears throat> that Christ has erased, he has exiled, he has executed this handwriting of ordinances against us. Notice what he says, Colossians 4. 15. 14, Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances—that was against us. First of all, blotting out—that's the idea of something being erased. In those days, there was a certain kind of ink that you could put on one of the tablets that they would write on, and uh, and 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 it could be wiped off, it could be wiped clean. And that's the picture here. Uh, God looks at our record, and because Jesus died in our place, He was our substitute. Our guilt and our shame, our sin, all that we looked at there a few minutes ago in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, etc. here, wiped clean. Wiped clean. Not a trace of it. Notice what else he says. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way. Took it out of the way is from a root word that means to send away. To send away. It was exiled. The claims had been transferred. It had been paid in full. Jesus paid it all. It was buried. It was gone to never ever return. Banished. Your sin and my sin. All that we listed that we have done against God. And done done against our neighbor. Done against other other, uh, image bearers. Is gone. Exiled away. Because of the cross. Jesus absorbed that. And then notice thirdly what he said in verse 14, nailing it to his cross. It was executed, it's a picture, it was nailed to the cross because Christ was nailed to the cross. Christ was not tied to the cross as as had happened commonly in other Roman executions. He was nailed to the cross. And those physical nails there, Paul uses as a spiritual analogy to tell you that uh, your sin was nailed to the cross. The charge against you was nailed to the cross so that you could receive full and free forgiveness. It was impaled. It was to not be removed. It was fastened to where it would stay. And when Jesus died, your sin died too. In fact, he'll even say in the next chapter, Therefore, mortify your sin, put to death your sin. Because it is dead. You're united in death with Christ's death. It was pinned, and that's why we can sing, My sin, O oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. It is well, it is well with my soul. He has fully and freely forgiven us because he has removed that charge he has ripped it off of ours of our cross he has put it on his he has nailed it to the cross with him and it died with him Your sin died with him you are fully and freely forgiven and you'll notice in verse 16 that he has fully and freely forgiven us because he has triumphed over all Look what he says in verse uh, in verse fifteen. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. He has triumphed over all. You see, as we in our sin through Adam were bound to Adam, we were blinded, we were ravaged by the disease of sin, like leprosy. We were invalid and unable to walk in fellowship with God as one who is lame. We were enemies to God. We were rebels. We were in bondage as slaves to the dark, unseen realm, to the world's powers. We were slaves to the prince of the power of the air, the false god of the world, the deceiver of the devil. But when Christ restored us through the true image of God, who is Christ, the God-man, He made us see the glory of God again. He healed us of the leprosy of sin that was eating us. He made us able to walk in fellowship with God through Christ. He made us children and kingdom citizens of our Father. He freed us from the wicked slave master of sin, our wicked hearts, the world's principles. 1 John 3.8 says, He came to destroy the works of the devil. And whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he's been born of God, John says. In other words, When you're in Christ, because of your new relationship with God, you have a new relationship with sin that's different than it was before. It's different than it was before. God puts the life of God in you. And we're not in bondage to sin. When we fall into sin as believers, it is never because we are in bondage to sin. It's because we are forgetting who we are in Christ. And so here's what he did in that dark, unseen realm that he's describing in chapter 15. The world just saw a criminal crucified that day, right? That's what they saw that day. And God saw a magnificent cosmic event that rocked the unseen realm. And here's what he says. He spoiled principalities and powers. That's the idea of all that is in the earth and the universe that is united and against God. Those that you can see and those that you can't see. The world system, but even those behind that. And that's who he's highlighting here, the unseen dark realm, the dark spiritual powers. Here's what he did. First of all, he disarmed them. Having spoiled principalities and powers, uh, spoiled is the idea of taking uh, uh, what one thought was their power and making it his own. And so here's what happened. Jesus took the illusion of their control and power at the cross. They saw Christ in the cross and the dark powers of the world were happy, weren't they? Here was their plan they thought right coming into play so they took their uh, this Jesus took the illusion of their control and power at the cross Jesus the innocent lamb which the bible describes as a bruise on his heel the cross and and and, and Jesus revealed the deeper truth that it was at work uh that he was the all powerful one And his seeming helplessness as one pinned on a wooden cross at the seeming hands of angry mobs and the world's powers was the very thing that his bruised heel would use to crush the power of sin and death brought into the world by the evil one. And he flips the scepter out of the evil one's rotting hand and he raises it high as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, the one true God. So he disarmed the dark, unseen realm. But also notice what Paul says. Having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly. He made a show of them openly. That word there, made a show uh, of them openly, that that made a show, is the idea of disrobing. 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 The robe of death and sin that they put upon him at the cross, he cast it aside, he exposed it for what it truly was, as rottenness, as unpowerful over him, and as a seeing pleasures of the uh, seeming pleasures of this life, but the reality and sin of the death and starvation of the soul. He, he reveals it for what it really is. And he shows that those who think they hold that power do not hold the power that they thought they did. He disrobed. In fact, that word there, a show of them, is used in chapter 3 and verse 8 when it talks about the putting off. The putting off. And then he says, triumphing over them in it, he displays to the world in public disgrace the enemies of God. In the Roman Empire, if you were a Roman military general and you were victorious from battle, you would come into the town and they'd throw a parade for you. And behind you at the end of the parade would be all those who you captured and the spoils of war. And many times, if he was spared, would be the leader of that barbarian country or that barbarian army or that enemy general uh, who would be in chains and stripped naked walking down the street. And the picture here is Christ, the victorious one, Christ, the victor, the one who leads, who displays here in public disgrace, the enemies that he has conquered. Man of sorrows, what a name for the son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a savior. Those hounds of hell, they barked and gnashed at him with their teeth. They rubbed their hands in glee at the cross, and he disarmed them. He disrobed their black robe of sin and death, and he displayed his triumphant glory and their utter defeat at the cross. And as we sang a few minutes ago, hallelujah for the cross up to the hill of Calvary. My Savior went courageously. And there he bled and died for me. Hallelujah for the cross. And on that day the world was changed. A final perfect lamb was slain. Let earth and heaven now proclaim, Hallelujah for the cross. Later he writes, A slave to sin my life was bound, but all my chains fell to the ground when Jesus' blood came flowing down. Hallelujah for the cross. And this, friends, is how you have been fully and freely forgiven at the cross. On November 26, 2008, a gig of terrorists stormed the Taj Mahal Palace in Mumbai, India. And after the carnage had left 200 people dead, a reporter interviewed a guest who had been at the hotel for dinner that night. And that friend, uh, or that, that, that guest described how he and his friends were eating dinner and they heard the gunshots go off by these terrorists, and someone grabbed him and pulled him under the table. And these terrorists and assassins came walking through the restaurant with their automatic weapons, shooting at will, until everyone they thought had been killed. And miraculously, this man was the one man who survived. the interviewer asked the guest how he had lived when everyone else at his table had been killed. He said, I suppose because I was covered in someone else's blood and they took me for dead. Ravi Zacharias points out here that that's what Christ's death did for us. His blood covered us. We are fully and freely forgiven. It covered us because he fully removed away the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. He took that in our place on the cross. By his stripes, we are healed, right? And... Because of that, he is able to triumph over the one who brought sin into the world. The evil one, that serpent in Genesis chapter 3, when he strides into the world with his deceitful uh, ways and his casting of doubt. The story that began at that point of the fallenness of the world is... Uh, ends here at the cross, and we'll see this in fullness here when Christ returns uh, with the evil one and all his angels thrown in the lake of fire. Because Jesus paid the penalty of our sin, because we're covered in the blood of His sacrifice, we have eternal life. We're going to sing it as well here with my soul, and, and I want you to sing this with a greater understanding and hearts lifted in worship on that third verse. My sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. It is well, it is well with my soul. Well, let's stand and sing together. It is well with my soul. If you need your hymn book, it's 478.